1 Kings chapter 3, verses 5 through 14. At Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream by night, and God said, Ask what I shall give you. And Solomon said, You have shown great and steadfast love to your servant David, my father, because he walked before you in faithfulness, in righteousness, and in uprightness of heart toward you. And you have kept for him this great and steadfast love, and have given to him a son to sit on his throne this day. And now, O Lord my God, you have made your servant king in place of David, my father, although I am but a little child. I do not know how to go out or come in, and your servant is in the midst of your people whom you have chosen, a great multitude, too many to be numbered or counted for multitude. Give your servant, therefore, an understanding mind to govern your people, that I may discern between good and evil, for who is able to govern this your great people? It pleased the Lord that Solomon had asked this, and God said to him, Because you have asked this and have not asked for yourself long life or riches or the life of your enemies, but have asked for yourself understanding to discern what is right, behold, I now do according to your word. Behold, I give you a wise and discerning mind so that none like you has been before you and none like you shall arise after you. I give you also what you have not asked, both riches and honor so that no other king shall compare with you all your days. And if you will walk in my ways, keeping my statutes and my commandments, as your father David walked, then I will lengthen your days. 1 Kings chapter 11, verses 1-6 through 6. Now King Solomon loved many foreign women, along with the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, and Hittite women from the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the people of Israel, You shall not enter into marriage with them, neither shall they with you, for surely they will turn away your heart after their gods. Solomon clung to these in love. He had 700 wives who were princesses and 300 concubines, and his wives turned away his heart. For when Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods, and his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God, as was the heart of David his father. For Solomon went after Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and after Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites. So Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and did not wholly follow the Lord as David his father had done. I'll add my welcome to uh, the many others who have welcomed you this morning, but if we have not met yet, my name is Gray. I am the pastor of this church, and very glad to have you with us this morning. Uh, if this is your first time, maybe you've been here a few times, or, um, or this is your church home, we're just so glad to have you with us this morning. And a quick update on the bathrooms. Uh, if you were here last week, maybe for the first time, then you probably experienced this as the Porta Potty Church. Um, as we had those temporary bathrooms last week, but we do have functioning bathrooms today. I've been uh, asked to inform you that everything is not quite finished yet. We still have some finishes to do there. So if you're noticing a few things that need to be polished up or painted over, uh, that is the case. But hopefully everything uh, should be working in there. And uh, thank you for bearing with us in that. We have been in a series looking at the kings of Israel in anticipation looking forward to this king that we come and bow down and worship, the newborn king, Jesus Christ. 
And if we look at the stories of the scripture, we see that this idea of the king that we are looking for to worship and adore is actually really the preoccupation of the Old Testament story after Israel asks for a king. In 1 Samuel, we're told that they ask for a king and God grants them their desire and he gives them these kings. And there is a model of righteousness and equity and justice and goodness that comes from the kings. So it's a positive look to say, this is, these are God's anointed men over Israel. These are God's choice. And therefore, there's a positive look at the kings. And there's also, though, a desire for a different king, for a greater king. And the kings give us both that positive and that negative image. And then that, that positive and negative is satisfied in Jesus Christ. So we've looked at Saul and, and asked, what would it look like to look for an obedient king? We looked at David. What would it look like to look for a faithful king? Today we're looking at Solomon. What would it look like to find a wise king? And next week we will look at Jesus in anticipation of Christmas the following Sunday. And so before we dive in today, let's actually go to the Lord one more time in prayer. Father, we recognize that you are here in our midst, that you are already Emmanuel. You are with us. You know the thoughts and intentions of every heart. You love us deeply in your Son and your beloved Jesus. And so we know that you already care for us. And as we come to your word today, we are looking for you. We are looking for this King to worship. I pray that you would give us wisdom even as we talk about wisdom. That you would give us a hope and a sure desire that you would meet with us and that you would give us life in your son Jesus, both now and in eternity. And we pray this in his strong name. Amen. So there's a mythical story that many of you probably know at least pieces of, but it's kind of captured the, uh, the imagination of the Western world. It has become a story that is often told has become a cautionary tale. It's the story of Daedalus and Icarus, perhaps you know the broad outline of the story. It's actually a really complicated story. If you look at it in Ovid's Metamorphosis, um, which I read in high school and first came across this story. Um, but the, the part of the story that has really captured our imagination that most people know about is the crashing and burning of Icarus. The story goes like this. For complicated reasons, Daedalus and his son Icarus end up in prison. They're imprisoned by Minos, the, the mythical king of Crete. And, um, and, and they're, they're caught in this prison. But Daedalus, the father, is this great inventor. He has great wisdom. And so what he does is he takes beeswax and feathers that he finds from birds, and he puts together wings, both for himself and his son Icarus, so that they can fly out and escape the prison as the story goes. He gives his son this great invention, but then he also gives him a stern warning. I'm quoting from Ovid here. He says this, this is Daedalus speaking to his son, let me warn you, Icarus, to take the middle way in case the moisture weighs down your wings. If you fly too low or if you fly too high, the sun scorches them. Travel between the extremes, and I order you not to aim towards Boots or the herdsman or Helis, the great bear, 
talking about the constellations, or towards the drawn sword of Orion. Take the course that I show you. As the story goes, Icarus begins well as they fly out of the prison, fly higher and higher. Icarus then, who starts well, becomes intoxicated with his flight abilities, and he doesn't stay the course. He goes towards the sun. Ovid again says, Icarus, drawn by the desire for the heavens, soared higher. The story ends with Icarus going so close to the sun that the sun melts the beeswax that holds the wings together and he falls to his death in the ocean where his father finds him and weeps over him. The son receives a great gift of wisdom from the father and then becomes intoxicated with his desire and falls. It's captured our imagination and it's told over and over again because this is the human story. It's a common story. It's the story of Solomon who receives the gift of God's great wisdom and then soars too high. I've mentioned before that we're not here to trash talk the biblical characters. In fact, that bothers me a little bit when preaching only does that, when it only set up these men and women faithful in the scriptures to fail. That's not really what the purpose of this is. Solomon remains, as the passage that we've just read, the wisest person who ever lived before and after him. He is a great man of wisdom. We just spent 16 weeks earlier this year looking at the book of Ecclesiastes, a masterwork of wisdom, and we leaned into that, scratching the surface only on, on the great depth of wisdom that Solomon had, his knowledge of the world, his knowledge of you know, uh, how nature worked. The scriptures tell us that, that people would come all over, from all over just to hear Solomon talk about trees, genuinely that he would just talk about the nature of things and people would listen. This is a man of great wisdom. So we're not here in personal judgment over the wisest man who's ever lived, but we are here, and it is appropriate to say that he cannot be the wise king that we are looking for. Because we are looking for a king who uses his wisdom only in service to others rather than in service to himself. That's the great desire of our hearts. When we look for a king, there's many things that we're looking for, but when it comes for wisdom, we want the, the wise king who will give of himself in service, use his wisdom for the service of others rather than for himself. And this is what Solomon did. The arc of his story is that he began in wisdom, giving of himself in service to the people of God. And then when he crashed, it was because he turned inward in service to himself. So we want to look at this story in three parts. First, how wisdom is gained. Secondly, how wisdom is lost. Thirdly, how wisdom is embodied. First, how wisdom is gained. Solomon begins well because he begins asking for wisdom. How is wisdom gained? We're told here that it's gained in three ways. First, by humility. Solomon gets wisdom from God, this rare invitation from God to ask whatever you will, 
And he gets this wisdom because he begins on his knees. Look at verse 5 with me of chapter 3. At Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream by night, and God said, Ask what I shall give you. And Solomon said, You have shown great and steadfast love to your servant David, my father, because he walked before you in faithfulness, in righteousness, and in uprightness of heart toward you. And you have kept for him this great and steadfast love, and have given him a son to sit on his throne this day. And now, O Lord my God, you have made your servant king in place of David my father, although I am but a little child. I do not know how to come out or go in, go out or come in. And your servant is in the midst of your people whom you have chosen, a great people, too many to be numbered or counted for a multitude. Do you see Solomon's humility as he begins? He is humbled in three different ways he talks about here. First, he's humbled by his heritage. He says, I know where I came from. David is my father. We talked about him last week. A man after God's own heart. He is humbled by realizing that he has a heritage to uphold. David, this model of righteousness, of walking after the Lord, of zeal for the Lord, of conquering the Lord's enemies. And Solomon is right to be humbled by his heritage. He's humbled by his inexperience. He says, I'm a child. I'm a lad. Solomon being most likely around 20 years old at the time of this vision from the Lord. I don't know how to go out or come in. I don't know the protocols of being a king of Israel. I'm so young. He's humbled by his heritage. He's humbled by his inexperience. He is humbled by the task. Verse 8 tells us that the reason that Solomon is so overwhelmed is because of the greatness and the multitude of God's people. A great people, too many to be numbered or counted for multitude. This is a huge task. Not only do I know the stock that I come from, from David, the man after God's own heart, not only am I young, but I think about what you have given me to do to, to rule this people. How could I possibly do this? And there's a beautiful little reference there uh, to the Abrahamic covenant. The language that Solomon uses here, so great is this multitude, he says, of your people, which harkens back to the Abrahamic covenant in Genesis chapter 15 and Genesis 17, the story of Abraham. If you remember, God came to Abraham, the first Israelite, the, the man that, that God called out as to be the family of Israel, the patriarch, the father of nations. And he says to, to Abraham, um, I'm going to be your God and your, your family are going to be my people. And in Genesis 15, he says this in verse 5, look toward the heaven and number the stars if you're able to number them. And he said to him, so shall your offspring be. Solomon is saying, picking up much of this language here from Genesis 15, knowing that his task not only includes the greatness of the multitude of his people, but this whole covenant story that, that he's a part of, the task that he is given, in other words, is huge. He's humbled. And humility is the start of wisdom. Wisdom is gained by humility. It's also gained by request. In verse 9, after his humble preamble, Solomon answers the question that God has asked him when he says, ask whatever you want. In verse 9, he says this, give your servant therefore an understanding mind to govern your people 
that I may discern between good and evil. For who is able to govern this, your great people? Wisdom is found by humility, but it's also found by request. Solomon asked God for wisdom. And notice why he wants wisdom. Notice his start here is not for himself so that I will be great and so that I will be perceived of as great. He says, give your servant therefore an understanding mind to govern your people. It's wisdom in service of others that Solomon wants. And he makes his request known. This is how we gain wisdom as well. By humility, but also by request. Think about James chapter 1, which tells us this. If any of you lacks wisdom... Let him do what? Ask of God, who gives generously and without reproach, and it will be given him. The scriptures tell us in many places that wisdom is given to the one who asks for it, and the one who is humble, God gives grace to. Certainly the case here, God answers his prayer. He is, in fact, pleased. Verse 10, it pleased the Lord that Solomon had asked this. And God said to him, because you have asked this and have not asked for yourself, notice the contrast there, you asked for this, not for yourself, long life or riches or the life of your enemies, but have asked for yourself understanding to discern what is right. Behold, I now do according to your word. He gives him the wisdom that he asked for. And not only that, as the story unfolds, he gives him riches and honor the things that he does not ask for which often accompany wisdom, not always. Solomon tells us elsewhere in the book of Ecclesiastes that wisdom doesn't always go, the race doesn't always go to the strong. It's not always the one who works hard, who receives riches, but often the two go together. Wisdom is gained by humility, by request, and finally, by worship. We didn't really read these sections, but just before this passage and just after Solomon sacrifices a thousand bulls and then he also offers a sacrifice after this dream in thanksgiving to God for giving him this wisdom he worships worship here includes two things both obedience and sacrifice do you notice what God then asks of him in response to his wisdom. There is a conditional element here where he says, I'm going to give you this wisdom, but I need you to walk with me in obedience. Verse 14, and if you will walk in my ways, keeping my statutes and my commandments as your father David walked, then I will lengthen your days. This wisdom is a gift, but it's a gift with a responsibility to walk in obedience and also to sacrifice, which is what Solomon does immediately next he gives thanks to God he worships God in the midst of his people and this is how wisdom is sealed it is through an obedient and worshipful life wisdom is gained by humility by request and by worship and if we're reading the story in first kings 3 we're given after this, an immediate example. The very next story in 1 Kings 3 is a famous story of Solomon's wisdom in service to the people. It's the story of dividing the child when two women come to Solomon claiming that a child is their own. 
both of them saying that one of them lying, obviously Solomon says, divide the child. Hyperbolically, he says, let's divide the child in half and give one side to each woman. And it reveals the true mother of the child. You see there, wisdom to govern. Wisdom in service of the people. Sadly, this is not the only story that we're looking at today. We need to see how wisdom is gained, but we need to see how wisdom is lost. Moving forward to 1 Kings chapter 11, we see almost a mirror image of this passage, which was interesting to read, how in many ways this passage undoes the things that Solomon requests, that Solomon gains. The gains that he has are now lost. Solomon turns from the Lord is the subtitle in my Bible. How is, humili- how is wisdom lost? Well, the things that have been gained are slowly taken away. We said the things that, were, that gain wisdom are humility, request, and worship. Well, here, humility turns to pride, request turns to manipulation, and worship turns to idolatry. Humility turns to pride. Look with me in the first couple of verses of chapter 11. Now King Solomon loved many foreign women along with the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, Hittite women from the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the people of Israel, you shall not enter into marriage with them, neither shall they with you, for, they, for surely they will turn your heart away after other gods. Solomon clung to these in love. Solomon loved many women. We're told here in the next verse the sickening details of that. 700 wives, 300 <clears throat> concubines. And we do need to understand this in its context. And maybe this will lessen the impact a little bit. First of all, we should say that these are round numbers, okay? (laughs) If that helps at all. Also, we shouldn't picture this as all happening at one time. This is somebody writing in view of Solomon's life. This is not as though there's a castle here of thousand women, okay, at one time. We should also say that many of these marriages almost certainly were in name and political alliance only, not necessarily in sexual union. But the point remains, of course, however much we chip away at those numbers, we're left with a sickening amount when we see that Solomon pursued and loved these women. And of course, it has to be about more than just love, and it has to be about more than lust here. This is about pride. This is about conquest. This is about the envy of others. This is about political power. This represents These alliances, these women, many of them would come from foreign places, as we're told. Why would he be marrying those women from all these different nations? Because there is peace, and he is is fortifying the alliances that he has made through conquest. And so I think we're given these round, big numbers to tell us that this is not just about Solomon's lust, this is about his pride. This is about him 
flying too close to the sun. This is about what he can accomplish and what he can own. Solomon began with humility, but it has turned to pride. He began with a request, but now that has been twisted as well in a mirror image. The request turns to manipulation as now he is the one being requested to worship others. We're told that the wives of Solomon turn his heart away from wholly being devoted to the Lord. Verse 4, For when Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods, and his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God. We know that Solomon was asked to build shrines to other gods by his wives, and that his sin here is not an active desire to walk away from the Lord so much as it is a capitulation to the request and the manipulation of others who wanted to worship in the way that they had been grown to know and had worshipped their whole lives. So Solomon gives in to his, these requests. Did you notice the word there that Solomon, right before verse 3, clung to them in love? He clung to them in love. It's an interesting phrase. It should remind us of a different covenant, not the Abrahamic covenant, but let's go back even further to the covenant of marriage. In Genesis, we see Adam and Eve and Moses who wrote the book of Genesis. He tells us the story of Adam and Eve, but then he gives us an editorial. He tells us about what happened in the institution of marriage. And a man shall leave his father and mother, Moses says, and shall cling or cleave to his wife. Leave and cleave. It's the same word as clung here. Solomon clung to them in love. And so here we see a reversal of the covenantal intention of marriage. Whereas marriage by Genesis standards is a man and a woman who leave the father and mother and cleave to each other. Here, Solomon has many women, clings to them, and then serves many gods. Instead of one woman before one god, it's many women before many gods. Third, worship turns to idolatry. This is what happens in the heart of Solomon as he gets older. In verse 5, we're told Solomon went after Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and after Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites. So Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and did not wholly follow the Lord as David his father had done. Interesting descriptions of Solomon's worship. We're told that he served Ashtoreth and Milcom. And what's interesting about those two God, goddess in the first case and, and God in the second case is that they're intentionally spelled in a different way here. Almost certainly giving us a play on words. The root is the same, but the spelling is different. The first refers to Ashtart, the, the goddess, the Canaanite goddess of fertility, and was worshipped by many nations 
uh, around Israel. But here, her name is not Ashtart, but Ashtoreth, which is very close to the spelling for another Hebrew word, Bosheth, which means shame. And Milcom is very close to the word both for Molech, the god of, another god of the Canaanites, but here is spelled differently to resemble the word Melech, which is king. And so it is though the, the writer of 1 Kings is telling us that he worshipped Ashtart, which was his shame, and he worshipped Molech, the so-called king. There's a heavy irony here and an intentional showing us that this was Solomon's downfall. His worship began in obedience and sacrifice and ended with disobedience and false sacrifice or false worship. This is how wisdom is lost. And we should pause here and ask ourselves for our own lives some questions. How is it that wisdom is lost, that a love of God or a heart for God that is so evident in 1 Kings 3 would be so absent in 1 Kings 11. How does that happen? How does it happen that our hearts slide away? I want you to see that for Solomon and for all of us, it is usually gradual. Solomon did not outright reject the name of God. He slowly lost his devotion. The passage says that Solomon was not wholly true to the Lord his God. He wasn't wholly true. He wasn't wholly against either, in other words. It's not as though Solomon said, this is not important to me anymore. What happened slowly is that his love was displaced. We are loving creatures. We are affectionate creatures. We are desiring creatures. We are worshiping creatures. We are made by God to set our hearts and affections on something. So love does not go away. It only gets misdirected. What happened to Solomon was not that he stopped loving God, but that he began to love other things more. The women, the power, the pleasure, the whatever it was that displaced his affection and devotion to God. And this is how wisdom is lost. What does your heart love? And what does your heart worship? These are the questions. These are the warnings we should be asking ourselves. This is the cautionary tale for us. And we can look at what Solomon began with and what he lost and ask ourselves, where is that lost for me? Have we lost some of our humility to sit before the Lord and say, I don't know how to go out or come in. I am a child when it comes to the ways of you and what is needed for whatever responsibilities God has given me. Have we lost that and instead moved maybe to a more of a sense of entitlement to say, I think I know what I should have and I think I know what I deserve. That's where wisdom is lost. Perhaps we've stopped requesting like Solomon began on his knees and says, give me this heart. Help me to know how to do this. If we lose that, then we start to dictate what God should be doing in our lives. And rather than asking for him, his wisdom, it's a dangerous place to be. What about worship? 
We ask ourselves, what does your heart love? How do we determine that? Ask yourself this, what do I give my time to? What do I give my attention to? What am I obsessed with? What is what gets my obedience and my sacrifice? What gets my obedience? What do I follow? And what gets my sacrifice? What do I give towards? Solomon began in obedience and worship and ended with disobedience and with false worship. And this is where the wisdom of God and the love of God is lost. What's the answer? How do we keep wisdom? What hope do we have, in other words, if the wisest man who's ever before or ever after failed to worship the one true God and wholly give his heart to the Lord, what hope do we have? The answer that the scripture gives is we don't need the wisest man who ever lived, only we need wisdom itself. We need wisdom embodied. Wisdom in the flesh. Wisdom itself to worship. With all of Solomon's wisdom, and he had more than any of us, it will not be enough. We, we can't build our life just on following the Proverbs or seeking the wisdom of Ecclesiastes. Because Solomon's wisdom, great as it was, was not even enough to make him as faithful as David. Do you notice the painful thing in verse 4 and in verse 6? It's repeated. He says about Solomon, went after Ashtoreth. Um, I'm sorry, verse 6. At the end here, I'll just read this one. The Lord, he did not... He did evil in the sight of the Lord and did not wholly follow the Lord as David his father had done. Twice it says here, as David his father had done, which is painful because this is exactly what Solomon began with. I want to be like my father David. He was humbled by his heritage, but he did not attain to his heritage. As we said last week with David, the faithful king the most faithful king who did an act of unfaithfulness, there was only downhill from there. And so all of the wisdom of Solomon will not save the kingdom. In fact, his sons will divide it. And from there, there will only be pain and suffering. God's still working. God's still moving in his people. But it will be at great cost. So we need a king who is not just wise, but is wisdom himself. That king is Jesus Christ. The thing that you need to know about Jesus when it comes to wisdom is that he had wisdom greater than Solomon and that he is wisdom itself. And both of those things mean that he is the wise king that we are looking for. Jesus had wisdom. Mysterious passage in Luke chapter 2, 
Verse 52, it says, And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. How is it that God incarnate himself increased in wisdom? It's a huge question for another day. But what I want you to see is this. He followed the same path as Solomon. Solomon at the beginning humbled himself and grew in wisdom. He asked for it of God. Jesus did the same. He often went away to be with the Father so that he could have his wisdom. And he gained that wisdom over time. So much so that people notice in Matthew chapter 13, Jesus goes to his hometown and he's speaking in the synagogue. And the people, it says, in Matthew 13, were astonished and said, where did this man get his wisdom? And these mighty works. Jesus grew so much in wisdom that he astonished people everywhere that he went. He had wisdom greater than Solomon, but he not only had wisdom, he is wisdom. Colossians 2, verse 3, Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Solomon had wisdom to the greatest extent, but Christ embodies wisdom, which is why he can be so bold in Matthew chapter 12 when he says to the people who are gathered around him, someone, something greater than Solomon is here. Something greater than Solomon is here, referring to himself because the greatest Wisdom, the man of wisdom who ever lived before or after, is overshadowed by Christ, who is wisdom himself. He is wisdom in the flesh. This is Advent, awaiting Christmas, when we come to the newborn king and we worship and adore him, Christ, in the flesh, in the body, this child, this king. We look no further, in other words, than to this child. He is the wisdom that this world needs. He is the wisdom that you need. We come and bow before Him. We adore Him. We give our obedience to Him. We give our worship to Him like the wise men and the magi who come and bow before this King and worship Him, recognizing in all of their wisdom, the wise guys, the the wise men of this world, the kings of this world come and give their attention to a child. Because his wisdom is in service to the people of God. The longing of the heart is to have a king who not only is wise, but who gives that wisdom to the people of God, who governs them justly. And this is something that Christ did. His wisdom was for the people. Christ taught wisdom, Sermon on the Mount, many other examples, so that we might live wisely. That's true, but he also modeled wisdom, meaning he showed us how to be with the Father. He showed us what submission and obedience and sacrifice looks like. He also laid down his life in service to the people of God so that they would be wise to salvation, so that we would know what it is to be right with God. Every aspect of Christ's wisdom was given for us, which makes him the king that we're looking for as we come this Christmas to worship and adore him. Know that it's not just a king 
who is faithful, not just a king who is obedient, but also a king who is wise and who shares that wisdom with his people. Let's pray. Christ, we honor your name, the one in whom all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are hidden. We know that what we look for is not found in anything else, but we need to be reminded of it. We need to come in humility, we need to come in request, and we need to come in worship to you this morning because our hearts have been distracted and displaced. We have not been wholly true to the Lord our God. We thank you that you have given us wisdom itself. You have given us Jesus Christ and not only promised him to to believe in his name, but also given us reminders at your table that he is the one who strengthens and nourishes us in our faith. So I pray that we, as we come now, would give honor to the king that we would be filled with you. And in so being filled with you, we would be filled with wisdom. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.